Well, this morning we continue our way through the book of Ephesians, having concluded that beautiful three-paragraph sentence, as we've discussed, where Paul opens this book and in this beautiful Trinitarian way and enumerates the blessings that are ours in Christ, right? The spiritual blessings that are ours in the heavenly places. From our predestination in by the Father to our redemption through the Son to our inheritance and deposit, the guarantee and sealing of the Holy Spirit. All three of these Paul has enumerated in, in a very deep and rich way, in a sentence, a beautiful run-on sentence that is beginning and ending with praise and praise, you know, it's laced through uh, the beautiful description. Uh, one that Paul, it's almost like once he gets the pen going, uh, you know, or gets speaking, if he's dictating it, uh, he just can't stop himself. And, uh, and we have a lot to learn from that. We have a lot to learn from the praise-saturated theology that Paul has given to us. And we have a lot to learn in the depth of the theology. You know, we, we need to be on guard against thin understandings of what we have in Christ. And that's going to, I think, uh, be on Paul's mind as well as we come to our text today. And I'll go ahead and, uh, well, no, Mark read it. We had Ephesians 1, um, verses 15 through 23. Uh, Paul, now just coming off this beautiful Trinitarian uh, high mountaintop, as Pastor Sherrod says, high theology, uh, the fresh mountain air of high Trinitarian theology. Um, we now come in verse 15 where Paul turns in prayer now toward the people. And again, it's a good reminder to us that for Paul, this high theology um, is not alien to prayer. That for Paul, the high theology also makes his prayers vibrant and rich. Uh, you know, it leads him to prayer. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not see to get, cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers that, and now he's going to go on to explain what his prayer is for them, and we'll consider that in a moment. But again, Paul's high theology then brings him back to a love for the saints, and his love for the saints is manifested, at least in part, in prayer for them. Now, just a note at the very beginning, what is Paul hearing of the Ephesians? Remember, he, he, he loves this church very much. And he heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for all the saints. And we won't try to dig more than is here out of this, but at the same time, once again, we see this, this bringing together of two things, of faith and love. And I think it's worth us remembering because typically as uh, Christians, we tend to fall off the razor's edge to one side or another. You know, we, we, it's all about love and we forget our theology. Right? We, don't, we don't have time for theology. I just want to love Jesus or I just want to love people. And that's not, certainly not a bad thing. But oftentimes, the emphasis on love seems to come at a cost and the cost is theology. 
of like deep thinking, hard thinking. The minute we start to think, even, even we confess is reading through that second sermon on this with that business about Jesus and he's, and the redemption and this and the, in the dispensation of the fullness of times and the mystery of the, and it's like, we're tapping out. We're like, all right, I'm done. I don't know what he's talking about. And, and that happens very often. We want to love Jesus. We want to love people, but man, this theology is too hard. I, I, I don't have time for that. It's actually taking me away from, or it's, 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 it's putting a wet blanket on my love for God when I have to think about all these concepts and so forth. I get, I'm going to end up with a lot of head knowledge and, and no heart knowledge. People talk of things like that. You know, that's just not Paul. Nor apparently is it the Ephesians. At the same time, there are those who do study a lot of theology and forget to love people. <laughs> And, and for whom they have great, there are some amazing theologians who are not Christians. You can read them. Many of the old German theologians, amazing insights and understandings of high theology and deep theological concepts, yet they don't love Jesus. They know a lot. Man, they've, they've hit the books. They know it in three different languages. But they don't seem to have a love for Christ or a love for the church. And so we have to be careful of this. We have to be careful that our theology and where we, this is one of the things that I think the book of Ephesians does for us is it's, it's channeling us. It's helping us, it's helping us focus our faith. We can say, okay, on the one hand, I want to have a robust theology. I want to build the muscle of my mind and of my soul that I can handle working through a hard theological concept, not just so I can have knowledge, but so that I might love God more. Remember, we've used the image before of like a cup, you know, a full cup of love for God. But knowledge and theology helps us build a bigger cup so we can have more filling of love for God. We can only love someone to the extent we know them. And so we want to have that. At the same time, we want to have a deep, deep love for the Lord and for His church. And apparently the Ephesians have this. Now, it's interesting, by the way, that... Uh, the Ephesians are the first letter that get written to in the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, they get chastised for losing their first love. So something is happening by time we get to Revelation, which let's just assume the late date, which is what I do, 90 AD. By the time we get to 90 AD, the Lord is rebuking them. Now, before Paul left, remember I told you when he did his three missionary journeys, on the last missionary journey, before he was going back to Jerusalem, where he knew it was going to be the end, he went to Miletus and he asked to meet with the Ephesian elders, specifically. And those guys came down and it was a very tearful, beautiful, you can read about it in Acts 20. It's a very beautiful scene. A lot of weeping, a lot of love between Paul and these men. And there, Paul warned them. He said, hey, be careful because wolves are going to come up from among the sheepfold here. And they're going to seek to destroy the church. You boys need to be on guard. And they were like, yes, sir, Paul, sir. You know, we're, we're on it, you know. And they went back to Ephesus and man, they were wolf hunters. These guys, they were on it. You know, they, they were not going to let that happen. And when you read the letter to uh, uh, the Ephesians in, the, in uh, Revelation 2, they're the first of the seven. Uh, they are commended. Because they, they've found these false prophets and they've dealt with them. And yet they are rebuked for losing their first love. And I, though we're not told what the first love is, um, I think we can, I think we can see it here. Therefore, I heard of your faith in the Lord and your love for all the saints. 
And so their hunger for good theology, which Jesus does not rebuke them for in that letter. They're not rebuked. You care too much about theology. You can't care too much about theology. And well done that you sought out false teachers and that you protected the flock. Well done on that. But this I have against you. You have forgotten your first love. And we always say, oh, that's Jesus. Now, I don't think they stopped loving Jesus or thinking they love Jesus, though there's a connection between Jesus and his church, as we'll see here. But I, I think it's the people. You, you, you've cared so much about theology, you've lost your love for the flock. You know, you've, you're, you're so, so defensive that you've forgotten to love the church and the bride of Christ. Not so here. Here they, they're maintaining that balance. So maybe we can learn on the one hand, the importance of that balance. And then two, the, 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 the fact that it's always precarious. Man, it's a razor's edge that we have to walk as Christians and we want to not fall into one ditch or the other. So we see that at the very outset here, Paul acknowledges their faith and their love for all the saints. And Paul does not cease to give thanks for them. And he makes mention of them in his, in, uh, in his prayers. Now, once again here, as Paul begins to pray, let's, let's just acknowledge right at the outset the subtle undertones of the Trinity that, that Paul continues to bring into this text. I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom. See, for Paul, when he thinks of God, the God to whom he prays, it's the Trinitarian God. It's God who is the Father of our Lord giving us the Spirit. And again, I, I don't say this as a, a major point, only to ask you when you pray, who do you see yourself praying to? Is it just a monolithic God or do you see, and which I, when I say see, we're going to actually use that language here, with your, with your mind's eye, your heart, do you, do, you, do you imagine yourself praying to the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? For Paul, it's just, it's the way he breathes. He breathes Trinitarianly. It just goes in and out, you know, and his prayer here for them is a Trinitarian prayer, even as every spiritual blessing we have in the heavenly places is a Trinitarian blessing from the Father through the Son by the Spirit. And so Paul's prayer here comes out of the Trinitarian world in which he lives. Okay, so what is the prayer that Paul has for them? And it's a challenging prayer. Um, when I say challenging, I don't mean hard to understand, but I think it's a, it's a challenge to us in our own prayer life. What kind of prayer does Paul pray for them? And it's not, it's not that our prayers are bad, our prayers are good, it's just how infrequently we pray prayers like this. That is a challenge to me. And let's see if we can unfold that a little bit as we go. What's his prayer for them? Uh, that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ may give you, here's, the, here's what I pray for you. He says that God, the Father of, the, of uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So his prayer for them is that God may give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation of the knowledge of him. Now, he already said they have faith. But he says, I'm praying that God would give you deeper and richer knowledge of him. So here, back to the theology. 
Paul says, I, I pray that your theology might even go deeper, might be richer. Later in Ephesians, he'll say that you might know better the, what is the height and the width and the depth and the breadth of the love of God. Like you have a sense of the love of God. But my prayer for you is that you might know it even more fully. So his prayer for them is wisdom and revelation and knowledge. He wants them to know something and to understand something. Now, the way that this comes out in verse 18 is that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. So here, here's, again, like Paul does, these sentences roll. You know, they roll. They're not, Paul does not write in short little phrases. He, he writes these rolling, deep, long sentences. So we got to stay with it. I pray that you might have the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Here's what that means, in other words, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? And then he goes on and we'll continue. But again, you can't ever stop in a sentence of Paul. Now, in verse 18, the eyes of your understanding, you'll see there's a footnote there. And down at the bottom, you'll see some text read hearts. The ESV, for example, says that the eyes of your heart be enlightened. And the reason the, the King James goes with understand, uh, the eyes of your understanding is because either way, it's an awkward phrase, right? But the eyes of your heart, as the ESV says, the heart in that case does not mean uh, uh, um, emotions. Like we tend to, we tend to think in, in, uh, in America, anyway, when, when the heart gets mentioned, we think of like the seat of our emotions. But that is not the way the Greeks thought of the heart. The heart for them was like the gut. It, it was like, it was where your, your priorities are, where your loves are, yes, but not the same thing as emotions. You know, it's, it's, it's where your affections were based out of, right? The things you value. And Paul says, so here's what it means. When I'm praying that the Lord may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, I mean, I'm praying that the eyes of your heart be enlightened, be opened, that you be able to see with your heart. And here again, we have Paul bringing two things, amazing things together. And, and fine, the King James says the eyes of your understanding, being enlightened, opened, given knowledge. For Paul, heart, again, forget emotions, though that's involved because it's affections. It's the things you love. It's your loves, your priorities. For Paul, your affections and your understanding are not two separate things. Paul has no problem just grafting them right together and saying, my prayer for you is that the eyes of your affections, the eyes of your heart may be enlightened that you might know. For Paul, there is, you cannot have, in Paul's mind, heart knowledge without head knowledge, and you cannot have proper head knowledge without heart knowledge. These two things are grow together, and Paul's prayer for the church is that they may not be torn apart, but that by their hearts they might see, they might know something. Not merely here, but down here. 
that you might know it in your guts. And as such, that in knowing it, you might love it. Again, St. Augustine taught, we talk about this all at Chapel Field, Emma and Andy and Noah can tell you, about Augustine's idea of the, the ordering of our affections. You know that Augustine, when St. Augustine, Augustine looks at the problem with mankind, he says, at, at the fundamental problem with mankind is his affections are all messed up. We love things out, we love things we shouldn't love, and we don't love things we should love, and then we love things disproportionately, things that you know we should love more, we love less, and things we should love less, we love more, and, and we're a jumbled mess of affections. And the Christian life for Augustine is, and his prayer for himself, was that the Lord would help order his affections, that the things that are most worthy of love would rise to the top, that we would begin to love what God loves as God loves it, and that we would begin to hate the things God hates as God hates them, and then everything in their proper proportion. But sin has, sin has jumbled us all up. And Paul is praying that in our affections in our guts, in our hearts, we would see that which is worthy of love and as such that we would love it. So for us, again, Paul's prayer is for knowledge, wisdom, insight, and that this insight would be given by having the eyes of our hearts opened, enlightened. That, continuing on in verse 18, that you might know. Again, Paul starts with knowledge. Knowledge will produce love. So we, if we know this thing, then again, we will, we will come to, but we, he, he wants us to know something. And he gives us three things that he wants us to know. First, he wants us to know what is the hope of his calling. Now here again, I, I've been, with the Philippians 3 bit, and then um, as our, that was our word of exhortation today. And just in my comments around, I mentioned that we tend to be people anchored to this life. You know, hope is something that, hope is something that lifts our eyes up beyond the horizons, right? Hope is something that looks forward. Hope is something that, that looks over all the problems of this world, of this age, and of this life, and, and tethers itself to something that's pulling it into the future. That's what hope does. And Paul says, I want you to know what is the hope of your calling. I want you to be people of hope who live out of that hope. Whereas if you're like me, our eyes tend to come off of the horizon down onto the problems of my life, down onto the problems of the age, which are real problems. But in the grand scheme, they're pretty insignificant. Life is short. I just did, I just did the funeral for uh, this week of, of the mother of, of one of our secretaries, been with us a long time. Uh, this woman has, and, and her mom died, and we, I know her a little bit. And so it was an honor to be there and to do that. But once again, just confronted at funerals with this reality. Like th these problems, the things that seem so big to us in the moment, it's only like a vapor and it's gone. And she's in the presence of God now. Praise the Lord. She was a believer. And she's, the things that bothered her, I forget what was she, 76 maybe, somewhere in the mid-70s. 76 years of, of things that may have bothered her. They, they're gone. They just, they just don't matter anymore. 
And yet these are the things that if you're like me, we spend so much time worrying about. And Paul is saying, my prayer for you is that the eyes of your heart might be open so that you know the hope of your calling, so that you are, that you look in some sense, not that we don't have to deal with these things we do and don't overhear me, but that we're being pulled into the future by the thing we hope in, which is rock solid in the Lord Jesus Christ, that that might be where our thoughts are and where our identity is and where our, our, our joys are stable because they're anchored to that instead of the constant fluctuation that we have because we're kind of tethered to this vaporous reality of this broken age in which we live. Paul says, I want you to know, having your eyes of your heart open, what is the hope of your calling, that we might be people of hope. Secondly, he says that you might know what are the riches of the glory of the inheritance of his inheritance in the saints. And his inheritance, he's saying, is the church. That the inheritance of the Lord Jesus Christ is the church, his bride. And Paul says, I want you to be people whose eyes are lifted up and you know the hope of your calling and that's what's driving you. Because that will then shape everything else you do. It'll reset your priorities. It'll reset your perspective. It'll make you people of joy in the face of trials. At the same time, I want you to know what is the riches of the glorious inheritance of Christ, namely his church. May you look at the church and see the glorious bride of Christ. Now, you need eyes of faith for this. You know, in Revelation, again, the church is manifested as a glorious bride, and that's the beautiful thing about Revelation. Revelation, the book of Revelation, kind of pulls back the veil because when you and I think of the church, it's, it's kind of a compromised bunch of people, a group like us, kind of hodgepodge, put together all different backgrounds. And think about the church at large. Oftentimes disgusted with the behavior of the church and the compromising nature of the church. And oh, we hear that this church closed and that church is falling away. And this, you know, yet the book of Revelation gives us the church and says, look at her. And it's a radiant bride. And Paul is saying, yes, and this is why I think that the Ephesians get chastised for losing their first love, because in some sense, they, they are not, they do not see the glorious inheritance of Christ in the saints. But may we be given eyes, one, hearts that are longing in hope, and then eyes who can see right here amongst us the glorious bride of Christ with whom we will spend eternity. And Paul, listen to the way Paul speaks about the church at the end of this text, because he, he, he's going to go on about Christ and then circle back to the church right in the last verse. And I'll just go to verse 22. And he put all things under his feet. Again, this, we'll talk about that in a second with Christ. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. So Christ is given all authority in heaven and earth, and as such, he is given to the church. And then in verse 23, here's Paul's description of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church is the body of Christ, the fullness of him who fills all. Remember last week I said something that could almost sound blasphemous. 
That is to say that we are Emmanuel. And by that, I don't mean I am God. But where is God with us? And the answer is here, because his spirit is dwelling in me and in you. I'm Bill Spanger is not Emmanuel, but God is with us in me and in you and in the church. And that's what Paul is saying, again, doubling down on that fact here in this text. What is the church? The church is the body of Christ. Where is Christ? Right here. We are the body of Christ because we are the bride of Christ. And, and that whole passage in Ephesians 5, the end of this letter, when Paul starts riffing on marriage, and he's talking about how the two become one flesh, and he goes, now I'm, t- I'm talking about a deep mystery here. And of course, I'm talking about Christ and his church. But just as husband and wife become one flesh, so it is with Christ and his body by the union of the spirit so that Christ, and think about this. I mean, it's it's shocking that Christ is so identified with his church that he can say, yes, that's my body. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? No, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Inasmuch as you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. The church is so united to Christ that in some sense you can't tell the difference. The church is the fullness of him who fills all in all. The Lord fills all in all and his fullness is in the church. It's it's like, it's. I don't know how you can say it any stronger. And therefore, And therefore, this is why it's so egregious that the Ephesians would not love the church. Because you cannot say, John says this in his epistle, you can't say, I love God, but I hate my brother. Can't do that. You can't say, well, I'm not into the church, but I just love Jesus. And I know many Christians like this, who they don't need to go to church. I don't need the church. I just love Jesus. And that's dangerous turf. Because the church is the body of Christ, the fullness of him who fills all. If you don't love the church, well, then I have to question your love for Christ. And that's not just me being arrogant. That, that I'm, I'm trying to help me see how in the text that's possible. And hence, when, when, when John gets to, to the Ephesians in that first letter, He says, I'll tell you right. This is the Lord speaking to these people, these wonderful people that Paul says, I'm so proud of you all and I love you all and I'm praying for you all. And Jesus comes along and says, I'll tell you what, if you don't repent of this, I will take your lampstand away. I will remove your lampstand. You're a church, you're a lampstand. In Revelation, the lampstands are the churches. And he says, I'll tell you what, if you don't repent of this, I will take your lampstand away. You have forsaken your first love. So it's a reminder to us. Let's not, again, let our theology and our love for God become so ethereal that it's not rooted in the ground and in the very people he loves. Again, if Augustine's right with this ordering of the affections, what does Christ love? If we're to love what God loves, well, what does God love? You know what he loves? You. And therefore, I need to love you. And my theology ought to bring me there. So Paul says, I'm praying that you would see something I'm praying that your eyes will be open. And, and you can even hear how Paul in that Philippians passage, his eyes were not opened. 
he was disoriented. He was valuing his own, right? And remember in Philippians, it's like all these things I counted as gain to me. Right? His vision was blurred until he came to know Christ. And all of a sudden it's like he could see. And, and interesting that in Paul's conversion, when the Lord appears to him, he blinds him for three days. And then the scales fall off. And Paul can see what he couldn't see before, right? And Paul is praying that for us, that we would see what is the hope of our calling, what is the glorious inheritance of Christ in the saints. And then thirdly, that you might see what is the, this is verse 19, what is the exceeding greatness of his power? And, and we, again, because we get, we get become people of our age and we look around at the chaos and problems, whether, whether, by the way, it is the prayer requests that we have in here, you know, these are real things, but they, hey, when we hear about uh, breast cancers and we hear about surgeries and we hear about funerals and we hear about, these are the problems of our age and they're real problems. And you can just feel like everything's unsettled. The ground is always shifting under you. And do you know what you need? When you hear all these prayer requests, you need to have your eyes opened to stabilize you. You need to have your eyes open to the exceeding power of his, you know, the exceeding greatness of his power. And notice, it's not just the exceeding greatness of his power, but again, the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. That is to say, it's worth having your eyes open to the exceeding greatness of the power of Jesus Christ. But Paul wants you to know more than that. It's not just, wow, isn't Jesus so powerful? It's the exceeding greatness of his power toward you. His power is for you, not against you. And Paul wants you to see that. What is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked. And now he's just going to, again, this is Paul just, Paul's theology is always right there so he can wax eloquent on this stuff. What kind of power? Here's the power that is for you. The power which God the Father worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principalities, powers, might, and dominions, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. So, so the power that is for you is the power of God which raised Jesus from the dead seated him at his right hand, given authority over every name named in this age, in the age to come, and the power by which he put all things under his feet. There's the reference, the Psalm 110 image. All things, so nothing is not under his feet. And gave him to be head over all things to the church. So Paul circles that back around and says, this exceeding greatness of power is toward you. Here's what power I'm talking about. The power that raised him from the dead, seated him in the right hand, at his right hand, put everything under him, and made him head over all things for you. For the church. What is Christ doing at the right hand of the Father right now? He is ruling for you. He is manifesting his power toward you. He is working all things for your good. Romans 8. Also in Romans 8, he is at the right hand interceding for you so that nothing can oppose you. Nothing can stand against you. Nothing can separate you from the presence of God and the love of God. No one can bring a charge against you. 
And Paul says, I just pray that you be given the eyes to see this. Because if you do, it'll change everything. But we need the eyes of our hearts opened to see it. Just like Paul, we need scales to fall from our hearts. And again, not just our emotions, but of our guts. So that's the kind of stuff you believe down where you really believe it. And Paul says, I pray for you that this may be true. And brothers and sisters, may this be our prayer for one another, our prayer for our church and for the church at large, that we being by God's grace, have the eyes of our hearts enlightened and opened that we might see what is the hope of our calling, the glory of the church, and the exceeding greatness of His power for you, that indeed we might be what Christ calls us to be. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this Trinitarian blessing. We thank You for Paul's prayer, which we know was for the Ephesians, but for all the church Make it our prayer, Lord God, we pray. We confess that we are earthbound people, Father, whose eyes are often lowered to the circumstances that swirl around us like disciples in the boat overwhelmed by the stormy sea. Remind us, we pray, Lord, of the one who is in our boat, who has exceeding great power and whose power is for us, that we might know the hope of our calling and that we might rejoice to be in this boat with brothers and sisters like these that you have placed us with. Father, that in all things, we might look forward to that day when we abide with you forever. Keep us strong and faithful until that day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.